New, new, new black, new, new black Wall Street book club. Evan Jefferson, brother, much love. Educating, elevating, because in knowledge is the power and we'll never give it up. <laughs> Literature is for the masses. Where to put your money down the how to watch your assets. Yeah, uplifting others is a passion. My brother Evan, he will turn it into action. New Black Wall Street Book Club. You should come read with come us. Read with us. Yeah, we comprehend and discuss. Yeah. If we all just come together, there's no limit for there's us. No limit for us. <laughs> Here comes your host, New Black Wall Street. Evan, take it away. New Black Wall Street Book Club. Welcome to the New Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put it in a book, we absolutely will find it. I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, CEO of ERGJ Enterprises, ERGJ Black Bazaar, and international best selling author of the book. The Black Billionaires Club. It's a study of black wealth. It's a study of the 12 richest black people in the world today and how they built their wealth. And I just believe that if you want to be wealthy, you should study wealthy people. We can find that book by going to the website www.theblackbillionairesclub.com www.theblackbillionairesclub.com You'll find that link in the description above or below. Well, guys, we're going to start with our daily motivations for African-American success. That's right. Daily motivations for African-American success. Uh, this comes out of a book written by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. And today's title is Role Model. That's right. Today's title is Role Model. And uh, our, our quarter today comes from a Mary Frutrell, who's an educator. Mary Frutrell, who is an educator. And she says this, and I quote, simply having children does not necessarily make a woman or a mother. Simply having children does not necessarily make a woman a mother. Now, this is a woman who says this. I ain't say it. She said it. <laughs> Simply having children does not make not, not necessarily make a woman a mother. And here's our passage of the day as we uh, get motivated today by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. He says this, and uh, let's, let's read. A young mother set her foot on the path of life. Is the road long? She asked. Her guide replied, yes, the road is hard and long and you will be old before you reach the end. But the end will be better than the beginning. Everybody put it on, so the end will be better than the beginning. The end will be better than the beginning. One day, while on her journey, a storm arose and the path was dark. Her children shook with fear. Their mother drew them close and covered them with her love. Her children said, oh, mother, we are not afraid for you are near. When the storm subsided, the mother said, this is better than the brightest day for I've taught my children courage. With the coming of a new day, a steep hill appeared on their path. The children climbed and were exhausted. Though she was weary, too, the mother continued to inspire them. Just a little bit longer, she said, and we will be there. So the children continued to climb and they reached the top. They looked back and said, Mother, you motivated us. We could have never reached the top without you. As the stars fell and the mother, the mother said, Today is, the, is better than the last, for my children have learned the meaning of patience and persistence in the face of adversity. The next day, strange clouds darkened their path, clouds of hatred and evil. 
As a result, the children groped and stumbled. Look up, coached the mother. Walk tall, don't bow down to anyone. Lift your eyes to the light, you are worthy. And the children searched above the clouds and saw the true idea. It guided them to safety. Her children said, mother, you've inspired us to continue on in spite of difficulty. That night, the mother said, this is the best day of all. For I have shown my children God, creator of the universe, and I have given them everything. The guy was right. The ending was better than the beginning. Excuse me, the ending was better than the beginning. What's going on, Swild World? How you doing, brother? The ending was better than the beginning. And here's our affirmation of the day. Here's what we want to allow to take root to our subconscious. And then we repeat this over and over and over again until it brings forth a harvest into our life. And this is a re really special one to me. Repeat after me. Uh, today, I will recognize the efforts of the women who struggle to raise their children during these difficult times. Again, today, I will recognize the efforts of the women who struggle to raise their children during these difficult times. Let's do it one more time for the people in the back. This time, I'll say it with some conviction. I think the key word is to recognize. Repeat after me. Today, I will recognize the efforts of the women who struggle to raise their children during these difficult times. So yes, we will recognize your efforts, mother, women, for raising your children during these difficult times. Man, what a role model the moms are. That's right, role model. Uh, here today on our Daily Motivation for African-American Success. Daily Motivation for African-American Success. And that's just our appetizer, people. That's right. That's just our appetizer. A quick word from our sponsor. Don't just buy black. Decorate black. ERGJ Black Bazaar is the Afrocentric marketplace, and we specialize in urban home decor. Anything from shower sets to wall tapestries to duvet cover sets, you can decorate your entire home with original black art-inspired gifts. Check us out at www.ergjblackbazaar.com, www.ergjblackbazaar.com. ERGJ Black Bazaar, the Afrocentric marketplace. We make group economics easy. The New Black Wall Street Book Club presents Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires by Shamari Wills. Let's read.
we're gonna be hitting right into this thing that's right black fortunes man it is the beginning so i figure what i do is we'll have a little intro today and then we'll actually get into this meet tomorrow. So we're going to start uh, by looking at the back cover, the inside cover, the introduction, and the prologue. So we get a gist of what this book is all about here today on the New Black Wall Street Book Club. Black Fortunes. Let's first take a look at where we normally would start. Is I don't know, most people probably start by looking at the back cover. Okay, see what they're saying on the back cover. So we're going to take a look at the back cover of the book, see what, see what people are saying about this book here. So advanced praise for Black Fortune. So we got a Margaret Lee Shetterly, who's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Hidden Figures. So this is the author of Hidden Figures. She says this about this book that we're about to get dive into for New Black Wall Street Book Club. She says the hard won economic advances made by African-Americans are usually eclipsed by better known political narratives. By telling the little known stories of six pioneering African-American entrepreneurs, Black Fortune makes a worthy contribution to black history, to business history, and to American history. This is what uh, Margaret Lee Shatterly has to say about this book called Black Fortune. And then we have a Julian Malvo, who is an economic, econ, who's an economist and author surviving and thriving 365 facts in black economic history. And she has this to say about this book. She says this, and I quote, Imagine the irony of being born enslaved and then elevated to millionaire status. These men and women made their fortunes through hard work, guile, luck, and uncanny entrepreneurial acumen. They accumulated wealth against all odds, clearing the hurdles of custom, law, and racial hostility. Will, Will shares obscure details about these rich and absorbing lives and gives these millionaires a dimensionality that some history history ignores. A really good read. And then we have one more quote that comes from a William Jelani Cobb, who is the author of The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama, and, and The Paradox of Progress. Says this, Shamari Wills, who is the author of this book, has added layers to our understanding of the black past, and its implications on the American present. American present. So this is the back cover for uh, Black Fortunes and advanced praise for this book uh, that was written by Mr. Shamari Wills. Okay, so now let's take a look at the front cover, or I'll call it the inside cover. So this, how many guys do this? You got, you look at the front, you read the back, and you open it up to the front. That's how I figured we go that route. So I came over here to the front cover. Can't to see that well. Front cover, and here we go. This book's twenty-seven dollars, by the way. Pretty expensive book. Um, says this: Immediately following emancipation, there were four thousand forty-seven millionaires in the United States, and six of them were African American. So this is after emancipation of proclamation, 4,047 millionaires and six of them were African-American. Okay. So between 1830 and 1927, as the last generation of blacks born into slavery were reaching maturity, a small group of industrious, tenacious, and daring men and women broke new ground. Everybody putting a on new ground. Broke new ground 
to attain the highest levels of financial success. A Mary Ellen Pleasant, under her gold rush wealth to further the cause of abolitionist John Brown. Robert Reed Church became the largest landowner in Tennessee. Hannah Elias, the mistress of a New York City millionaire, used the property her lover gave her to build an empire in Harlem. Orphan and self-taught chemist Annie Turnbull Malone developed the first national brand of hair care products. Mississippi school teacher O.W. Gurley developed a piece of Tulsa, Oklahoma into a town for wealthy black professionals and craftsmen that would become known as Black Wall Street. Although Madam C.J. Walker was given the title of America's first female black millionaire, she was not. She was the first, however, to flaunt and openly claim her wealth, a dangerous and revolutionary act. Nearly all the unforgettable personalities in this amazing collection were often attacked, demonized, or swindled out of their wealth. Black Fortunes illuminates as never before the birth of the black business type. Black Fortunes illuminates as never before the birth of the black business Titan. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that word. Black business Titan. I feel like that's me. <laughs> he must be talking about me. Black business Titan. Just call me Mr. Titan, okay? <laughs> Remember the Titans. <laughs> I like that Black Force Illuminates as never before the birth of the Black business Titan. So that's going to be our inside cover, guys. As you can tell, I'm just super excited. I'll go through the back cover, the inside cover. Now let's take a look at our introduction, guys. Our introduction to, you heard it, guys, Black Fortunes. The story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery to become millionaires. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the introduction. You guys ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Let's read. Oh, let's read. Oh, let's read. Introduction. I grew up hearing stories from my mother about Uncle Johnny, the millionaire. My great-great-uncle John Mott Drew, born in 1883, was a boisterous man with a hearty laugh who dressed in all black three-piece suits and wore a white Panama hat on top of a head of wavy white hair. He was known for being frugal despite his wealth and gave the children in his family $2 bills and silver dollars for Christmas. Before he rose to millionaire status, John Drew was the son of a slave. His father, Napoleon Bonaparte Drew, was enslaved on a large plantation called Bellmead in Powhatan, Virginia. Napoleon had a zealous work ethic and an innate sense of self-confidence, which he passed down to his children. After emancipation, he bought a farm in 1897 near the plantation where he had been slaved and became the first black person in Powhatan County to own property. In 1875, he rented out his farmland and Napoleon moved north to Darby, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Philadelphia with his wife, three sons, and a daughter. When his children reached adulthood, Napoleon sold most of the land in Powhatan. Take the money from my land and make something of yourselves, he told his children. 
1901, Simon Drew, his eldest son, opened an ice house in Derby where he sold oysters, beer, and ice cream. Simon was known for the parties he threw at his restaurant as well as for being a lookalike of Frederick Douglass with long white hair smoothed back tightly and, distinct, and a distinguished beard. After opening a restaurant, he bought four apartment buildings in the black suburbs of Philadelphia and became a landlord. His brother, John Mott Drew, was, even, was an even shrewder investor. John started his career in real estate like Simon, but he eventually branched out to other more lucrative businesses. In 1919, he noticed that the people in the majority black towns of Yedon and Darby, where he also lived, had no way to get to work in Philadelphia and nearby Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. He took matters into his own hands. Everybody put in the comments, oh, I'm taking matters into my own hands. He took matters into his own hands. Now, before I go any further, let us notice that the father, Napoleon Bonaparte Drew, was very shrewd and although he was a slave he found a way to save and he passed down he gave his children some money said take the money from my land and make something of yourselves so he passed down a small inheritance to his children and he said now you go do something with it now his children had been watching him obviously had noticed some things about him and a couple of i don't know how many children he had but these two that they're talking about they went and they did something. They became businessmen. One did an ice house with, uh, with real estate. The other one was in real estate. And I guess we're going to find out what else he did as he took matters into his own hands. So he took matters into his own hands. He bought a bus and began driving a jitney route from the suburbs to the city. When he founded that, the John Drew bus line, he became the first African-American to own a bus line. I mean, guys learned that in, a, in a Black History Month. John Drew became the first African-American to own a bus line. Now, also notice this, that he saw a problem and he provided a solution. He said, hey, man, nobody get to work. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times it happened to me, I noticed something, and guess what guys said? Okay, we need to do something about that. <laughs> he did something about it. He started with one bus, and then the next thing you know, he had a bus line. And he solved the problem that he saw in the land. The enterprise grew over time, adding six buses to his fleet and several dozen employees in 1930. <laughs> 1930. He sold his, buses, his business to a larger conglomerate under condition that it would retain his black employees and never allow segre segregation on his bus route. John Drew was also a stock trader. So he was in real estate. He started his own business doing buses and he was on Wall Street. He was a stock trader. He knew that directly trading stocks himself would prove extremely difficult and hired a white broker to trade secretly on his behalf. During the roaring 20s, John invested the profits from his bus company, sale into the stock market and benefited from the historically profitable bull market. In the late 1920s, sensing that the roaring stock market had entered a bubble, he told his broker to pull his money out. He walked away with over a quarter million dollars, which is about $3.5 in today's term. Just months before many other investors were wiped out by the great crash of 1929. John purchased a local Negro baseball team, the Darby Daisies. So he went from bus, took some sold the bus company, got the profits, 
went to the stock market, turned that money, multiplied that money. And then now he took those profits and he went and bought a Negro League baseball team. Now notice this guy, he just keeps, he just keeps multiplying and keeps multiplying. He keeps taking risks and keeps multiplying and getting reward. I, I'm telling you, I, 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 I'm feeling this Mr. John Drew right now because I've learned what he's learned. And I think I'm taking something from him right now. Just keep multiplying my seed over and over and over again. Multiply. Everybody put it guys on multiply. So John Darby in 1930. Bus line. Solved problem. Fulfilled that problem. Or fulfilled problem solution. Sold that. Right? Uh, into the stock market. He was wise enough to get in and get out right before the crash. Over a quarter million dollars back in that time worth about $3.5 million in today's term. Took that and went and bought a baseball team. He was an owner of a baseball team. He wasn't trying to play baseball. He was trying to own the team. Okay, let me just keep going. I'm going to keep that. Keep that right where that is. <laughs> okay, I'm going to leave that right where it is. This is in 1930. What's our excuse? Now, in almost, nine, in almost 20, 20, almost 100 years, 90 years later, Okay, let's keep going. John purchased a local Negro baseball team, the Darby Daisy. He operated the team for two years until it folded in 1932 due to low attendance as during the Great Depression, fans had less money for re recreational activities. John turned the ballpark into a gentleman's farm, furnishing it with the livestock that grazed on the infield. John died without a will. John died without a will. His story made me realize that the economic achievement of African-Americans dates further back than today's black elite. The creation of black wealth is an important but overlooked subject in the economic and social history of the United States. African-Americans were treated as property during slavery and were stripped of their economic and social personhood, reduced to commodities to be controlled, managed, bought, sold, underwritten, and leveraged. Attaining economic independence and power was a revolutionary act. Black millionaires disrupt stereotypes of black economic impotence. They remind us that African Americans do not lack the desire or ability to work or build business and wealth, but that instead they have often had to overcome great struggles to achieve economic stability, let alone independence and power. Early in our country's history, African-Americans who achieved wealth were often attacked, demonized, or swindled out of their money by those who knew the Jim Crow court system would offer no redress to a black person. The black elite in their first decades of existence survived assassination attempts, lynchings, frivolous lawsuits, and criminal cases all meant to destroy or delegitimize their wealth. Madam C.J. Walker was memorialized as the first black millionaire, not because she was the first to achieve wealth, she was far from the first, but because she was the one, uh, she was one of the first African Americans to flaunt and claim her wealth openly and fearlessly. The earliest black millionaires were conditioned not to be so brazen. Black Fortune tells the story of Mary Ellen Pleasant, Robert Reed Church, O. W. Gurley, Hannah Elias, Annie Turnbull Malone, and Madam C. J. Walker. America's first cohort of black millionaires and their journey to liberty and wealth. Everybody put it down so liberty and wealth. Mary Ellen Pleasant's story begins in the 1820s 
That's 200 years ago. And spans nearly a century. She was a free black woman who raised who was raised in New England during the whaling boom in the 1830s and 1840s that inspired Herman Melville's most famous work, Moby Dick. She left New England for California during the gold rush of 1849 and became wealthy as a commodity trader, a money lender, and the proprietress of high-end boarding houses. She used her wealth to fund John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry and supported suffrage and civil rights activi activists and causes. Wow, this lady was a commodity trader. Wow. She was a money lender. She was a bank herself. And she was a, uh, looks like a, some type of landlord, a proprietress of high-ending boarding houses. So she ran boarding houses. Wow. Back in 1830. Robert Reed Church. Now, let me just say this right now, guys. Uh, as we go on through this book, we're going to put some respect on these names. <laughs> on these names. Mary Ellen Pleasant, I put some respect on your name. Robert Reed Church was born a plantation slave, uh, born a plantation slave during the peak of the cotton trade. The product of a liaison between a wealthy white steamboat captain and his black concubine. He escaped slavery during the Civil War and became one of the largest landowners in Memphis, Tennessee. Mr. Robert Reed Church, we put some respect on your name. Uh, Annie Malone was the daughter of slaves. She was abandoned in an early age and raised by her sister in Illinois. As a young woman, she invented a number of black hair products, which she later built into America's largest hair brand. Annie Malone, we put some respect on your name. At the turn of the century, O.W. Gurley, a school teacher from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, built an all-black neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Greenwood. And which became known as Black Wall Street. The enclave serves as a refuge for African-Americans seeking a middle-class life and a safe haven from the lynchings and racial violence of the South until it was destroyed by a white mob in 1921 during the Tulsa race riots. O.W. Gurley, we put some respect on your name. Hannah Elias was the black mistress of a white New York millionaire who heaped money on her. She used his gifts to decorate her mansion to look like Cleopatra's palace. When her wealth and affair with a white man were revealed, angry mobs set upon her house and she was arrested. Elias eventually beat the charges and moved to Harlem, where she helped John Nail, a black real estate developer, turn the neighborhood to an enclave for New York's black residents. Hannah Elias, we put some respect on your name. Researching, researching these stories of these titans of industry was challenging because they died more than 100 years ago, with the exception of Annie Malone, who passed away in 1956. Few records exist concerning African Americans before 1865. At the time, they were often viewed as non-citizens and seldom cataloged by census takers or vital record keepers. Further, in many cases, these men and women were self-educated. Everybody put it down so self-educate. It keeps coming up in every book I read. In many cases, these men and women were self-educated and could read but not write effectively. And as a result, they did not keep diaries or engage in letter writing. They had small families, only a few of their children lived to adulthood, leaving virtually no surviving relatives to tell their stories directly. Therefore, 
I relied on extensive archival research. I painted the stories of these accomplished people by surveying their own writings and letters, newspaper clippings, and oral accounts by their contemporaries that were documented. I labored over any available vital records and hundreds of hours of research. I've given an earnest effort to deliver an accurate and fair portrayal of these individuals' lives and their work. The establishment of wealth is fundamental to social and political progress. The establishment of wealth is fundamental. Everybody put it down so fundamental. Wealth is fundamental. The establishment of wealth is fundamental. I'm gonna keep saying that over and over again. That sounds like that's gonna be my one of my new t-shirts. The establishment of wealth is fundamental. The establishment of wealth is fundamental. The establishment of wealth is fundamental to social and political progress. Now, you wanna make social progress? You need wealth. You wanna make political progress? You need wealth. Establishment of wealth is fundamental. I mean, my goodness, I, if we don't get it by now, how important establishing wealth is. Having an economic base. The establishment of wealth is fundamental. Wealth has the ability to transform communities and close gaps in racial disparities. During these individuals' lives, that which spanned the 19th and early 20th century, an era when African Americans needed housing, uh, needed jobs, and, and funding for political campaigns and activism, it was the black wealthy class that often supplied the means. Many successful black Americans, including the luminaries of black fortunes and my great-great-uncle John Drew, had to use white proxies to perform financial transactions to avoid being excluded on the basis of race. Today, as Oprah Winfrey and Michael Jordan and Robert Smith make up the first cohort of black billionaires, it's important not to lose sight of the history and battles that were waged in our still being fought to make such achievement possible. These stories are all are a neglected part of not only black history, but also American history. And they deserve to be told and woven into the tapestry of our shared history. Through the stories of America's first black millionaires, we see the limitless potential. Everybody put it down so limitless. We see the limitless potential of black Americans. Despite structural inequalities. And we can glimpse the hope for one day achieving racial economic parity. We see the limitless potential of black Americans despite structural inequalities. And we can glimpse the hope for one day achieving racial economic parity. Woo! This is just the introduction, people. I mean, my goodness. That's just the introduction. A quick word from our sponsor. And we're going to get into our prologue before we get into chapter one. So we'll read prologue and then we'll we'll save save some more for next episode okay 
So Black Fortunes, here's our prologue. The first black millionaire. The first black millionaire. On a warm night in 1841, William Alexander Liedersoft, Liedersdorf, sat on the porch of an old white house covered in vines in New Orleans with his fiancee, Hortense. And she leaned on Liedersdorf. She could tell that something was bothering him. Hortense took into his heavy-lidded auburn eyes. What is troubling you, William? She asked looking up at him with her big blue eyes framed by blonde curls. Against his better judgment, he confided in her. He stammered as he tried to get the words out. I'm, uh... He finally told her. Hortense's eyes filled with tears. As she took in his confection, confession, she scanned his features. He had a round, pale face with a straight nose, ruddy cheeks, pierced, deep-set brown eyes, bushy sideburns, and the curly brown hair that he swore slick back with oil. As he cried, he confessed that he was from the Virgin Islands, the son of a Jewish Danish sailor and merchant and a black island woman. He had been passing for white since he had arrived in New Orleans from the Caribbean as a boy, rising from working on the docks to commanding a ship in his mid-twenties. Hortense plunged her face into the sleeve of his velvet jacket and sobbed heavily. My father will never let us marry. And I cannot deceive or disobey him. Our dream is ended. But I will love you as long as I live, she, he said. Go, you must go, Hortense told Leader's door. My heart will always belong to you. Run, William. I must tell my father. She shouted after him as he retreated into the night. Hortense came from, aristocrat, came from aristocrat, aristocratic, aristocratic, New Orleans family that owned slaves and was slaves and was strongly disapproved Hortense marrying a man of color. After Liedersdorf left, she went inside the house and told her father about him. And since her father announced that the wedding was off, dragged her to the door of her room and pushed her inside. You will never see that nigger again, he swore, turning the key and locking her in. The next day, Liedersdorf received a package from Hortense's father with the engagement ring inside and decided to leave New Orleans. He sold everything he owned and purchased a ship. The day before he was to leave the city, he was walking down Canal Street and was passed by a funeral procession. He stood in the doorway of a store and watched the mourners go by. He spotted Hortense's mother, father, and sister in one of the carriages and his heart sank. That night, there was a knock at the door. When he opened it, he was greeted by a priest. The man handed Liedersdorf a small gold cross, which he immediately recognized as Hortense's. Hortense's last words were that she wanted to, you to have this, the priest told him. In 1841, Liedersdorf left New Orleans. He sailed to California, then a remote Mexican territory. As he stepped off the gangplank of his ship in Yerba Bueno, Cove, he saw a backwater, thick forest, and green hills dotted with Indian communities, military forts, cattle farms, and Catholic missions. Deciding he would live openly as a mixed-race man, he settled in San Francisco, and started an import-export company shipping tallow and animal pelts from California to Hawaii and Alaska. Once that business turned a profit, he used the money to open a general store, a warehouse, a lumberyard, and a shipbuilding business. He also built San Francisco's first hotel. San Francisco had very few inhabitants at the time. 
Liedersdorf, still trying to mend his broken heart, seemed to relish the isolation. His only friends were his employees, a bartender at his hotel, and his black laundress. At night, they would go down to the beach on the northern coast of San Francisco to swim. Sometimes they just sit on the rocks, looking up at the moon and talking until the sun came up, listening to the waves crash on the shore. In 1844, Liedersdorf, then Mexican California's most prominent resident, was granted citizenship by the Mexican government. In return for his allegiance, Mexico gave him more than 35,000 acres of undeveloped land. His acquisition made him the largest landowner in the area. Liedersdorf built a large mansion in the hills of San Francisco, which he referred to with a tongue-in-cheek as the cottage. His house was a New Orleans-style home with dozens of rooms, a wraparound porch, and the state the state's only flower garden. His estate functioned as a de facto U.S. embassy in Mexican California territory. A convivial host, he received generals and politicians at his residence. He served his guests beer and meat and offered them cigars. He apologized for not having better whiskey, which was hard to come by in the West. We get what we can get, he told them. Would you like some tequila? He spoke with a strange accent, a mix of his father's Danish his mother's Caribbean patois and Southern drawl. In 1846, when Mexico went to war with the United States, Liedersdorf switched his allegiance to the Americans as appointed United States Vice Consul to Mexico. After the Mexican-American War ended and the U.S. annexed California, the United States government made Liedersdorf the treasurer of the territory. In 1847, he built California's first public school and a, a horse racing track for the citizens' entertainment. In 1848, when gold was discovered in the Sacramento Valley, the value of his property and business skyrocketed to over $1 million, making him the first African-American to achieve a net worth of more than $1 million in the history of the United States. One spring night, Liedersdorf retired to bed in his quarters on the top floor of his mansion. The next morning, doctors pronounced him dead of brain fever. Flags in San Francisco were hung at half mast and Californians wept for the loss of one of their most of the most beloved. After his death, Joseph Folsom, a real estate investor, traveled to the Virgin Islands and found Liedersdorf's estranged mother, Anna Marie Sparks, his sole known heir. He convinced her to sign over her son's property for a payment of $75,000 or $2.1 million. The Liedersdorf estate was worth more than $1.4 million or $38 million. With the stroke of a pen, the fortune and legacy of America's first black millionaire was stolen. With the stroke of a pen, the fortune and legacy of America's first black millionaire was stolen. <laughs> well, that's our intro, people, and that's our prologue. The first black millionaire, Mr. Liedersdorf. Uh, seems like heartbreak or something like that pushed him to greatness. That seems to happen. He, he lost a heart and said, I don't want to love no more. Let me just go to work. And uh, built a hotel. Uh, yo, got property. Did a lot of business. Uh, probably had a, over $1 million net worth. His, over $1.4 million was his estate when he passed away, which is about $38 million a day. And uh, 
ignorance, right? Or not knowing, right? The, the lack of knowledge, right? The lack of knowledge, right? Our people perish because of lack of knowledge. So the lack of knowledge of his mother, right? Didn't realize the value of the estate and uh, sold off the estate for a measly $75,000, uh, which that's what happens when you don't know. When you don't know, you don't know. So at any rate, uh, this is Black Fortunes, guys, and this is uh, what we're going to be getting into, talking about the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and become millionaires, and I think he threw that one in. Uh, that was the first uh, known millionaire in America, Mr. Liedersdorf, who had his whole estate stolen by the stroke of a pen. All right, my beautiful people, man. That's what we got today here on the New Black Wall Street. The beginning of our journey into Black Fortunes, a book written by Mr. Shamari Wills. I hope you're just as excited about what we're going to learn uh, and, and how we're going to be changed and how we're going to be impacted by hearing our history, a uh, history of wealth, a history of prosperity, a history of going from nothing to something. Man, oh man, I can't wait to go through this wonderful, it looks like it's going to be a one. we'll be able to determine what's a wonderful book when we go through it. But we got one quote for you and then we'll close this thing out from Abraham Lincoln back in 1859 says this, this is a world of compensations. This is a world of compensations. This is the New Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put in a book, we absolutely will find it. Now, I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, and we invite you to join the Black Billionaires Club. Get connected with brothers and sisters who are serious about winning with money, serious about success, and super serious about helping you to accomplish your goals and to build your dreams. Check out the website at www.theblackbillionairesclub.com, www.theblackbillionairesclub.com. You can find that link in the description above or below. Make a decision to change the rest of your life. We'd ask that you would subscribe and support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes to improve financial literacy within our community and ultimately to help us to build the School of Wealth. To build an institution that will teach the next generation about money and your small monthly contribution can make all the difference. Well, says, well, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the New Black Wall Street Book Club. We want you to remember this, that it takes a village and it starts with us. Let's build as we climb together. We all we got, people. And thank God that that's more than enough. Until next episode, you know what time it is. Mr. DJ, hit the music. New, new, new black, new. It's the new black Wall Street book club. With your host, Evan Jefferson. Evan Jefferson. It's time for us to go. Yeah. Now you ain't got a little computer, but we encourage you to get out there and learn and apply all the things you learn at the new black Wall Street. Book club, book club. <laughs> yeah. The new Black Wall Street. The new Black Wall Street.